And uh, they let me out of the cave today. Normally, I'm helping to run the live stream and, and kind of doing some things behind the scenes, but uh, I'm the pastor to students and families here at Osterville Baptist Church. And today, I will be wrapping up our series that we've been working through, Five Prayers That Mattered. If you missed last week's service, you may not know that uh, Pastor Rob is actually hanging out in New Hampshire this weekend. Uh, we lent him to Camp Berea for the weekend, and, and he's speaking to families at family camp. So uh, uh, we're thrilled that we get to share him with a ministry that has blessed our students over the years at Snow Camp. Um, they asked if he would be able to come and, and uh, help them with that weekend, and we were thrilled to be able to share him. Well, I got to say, it's been kind of quiet in the office this week, uh, and uh, you know, it's, uh, I already feel like I kind of miss those guys. We're not going to see them again until August because they're headed away for vacation uh, as soon as they're done at camp today, but uh, we'll, we'll see them again in August, and so we look forward to that. You know, sometimes when we prepare for a vacation, it can actually be a little more work than sticking with the regular routine of things, right? If you've ever had to leave, uh, leave your job to, to go do a, a long vacation, uh, it takes some time to set things in order. And, and I know for us in the church office, uh, we had some extra meetings, uh, we had extra responsibilities assigned, points of contact established if this happens or if that happens, or what do we need to do if this thing takes place. It takes a bit of work to prepare to go away for a while, doesn't it? So we're going to see something similar this morning as we look at John chapter 17. That's where we'll be this morning. So if you brought your Bible or if you're at home and, and you can pull it up on an app or whatever it is that you use, uh, John chapter 17 is where we'll be. We'll also have it up on the screen as we, as we read through it for those of you joining us here today. So John 17 marks the end of a section of Scripture that some call Jesus' farewell discourse. And uh, it kind of makes sense because as we set the scene, we're, we're going to see uh, how, this is, how the, the name makes sense. This chunk of the book of John, chapters 14 through 17, happens during the same evening when Jesus and his disciples celebrate a very special Passover meal in the upper room that we now recognize as the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so uh, in John chapter 13, we see a couple of things take place before he begins this teaching. Jesus washes the disciples' feet prior to supper, and he demonstrates servant leadership and teaches a very important lesson to the disciples. Now, one of the people Jesus washed their feet was Judas. And as you know, Judas leaves the supper and he prepares to betray Jesus. He goes to get the soldiers and the armed guards who were going to come and arrest him in the garden. And following that, Peter says, oh, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to deny you. And Jesus says, well, by the time the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And so Jesus foretells this happening. So in chapter 14, Jesus begins teaching the disciples. And so he begins uh, knowing that this was going to be his final earthly teaching to his disciples. This is a very important moment. And that explains the term farewell discourse. He's getting ready to, to leave and, and leave them in charge. And so he is he's preparing this teaching. So in this case, though, Jesus wasn't preparing to leave for vacation. He was preparing for something much larger. Jesus was preparing the disciples for his betrayal and for his death. So in John 14, 31, Jesus and the disciples, of course, without Judas at this point, they depart for the Garden of Gethsemane while Jesus is still teaching. So we see at the end of that verse, he says, rise, let us go from here. And so at that point, they leave the upper room and begin walking to the garden. 
And so Jesus continues teaching through chapters 15 and 16. And he knew that in just a few short moments, Judas was going to betray him, bringing armed men to the garden in this secluded place that they would normally escape to for prayer. Before they arrive at the garden, Jesus concludes his farewell discourse with the passage we'll be looking at today in John chapter 17. So even though Jesus begins praying in this passage, there's still a sense in which he's finishing his teaching to them. Jesus knew that aside from his own grueling ordeal that he was about to face, he knew that the disciples were about to face a serious crisis of faith. Their rabbi, the Messiah, was about to be executed, and the sheep were about to be scattered. He told them as much in Matthew 26, 31. Then Jesus said to them, "'You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered.'" So Jesus knew that his arrest, betrayal, and death was about to rock their worlds. And even though Jesus knew that Easter Sunday was coming, he also knew that the disciples following Easter were about to become the leading shepherds and teachers of his new church. Little did they know that in a few months, this ragtag band of disciples were going to be proclaiming the gospel publicly to thousands and leading thousands of people in this brand new church. Now, Jesus, of course, knew that all this was coming, right? So in this prayer of John 17, this takes place at a pivotal moment in church history. Things are about to change in a big way. And so in his commentary on the book of John, J. Ramsey Michaels describes it kind of like this. It appears that this final prayer of Jesus is itself an operation of divine grace, transforming the shaky faith of the disciples into something firm and lasting. So in this pivotal farewell moment, what is it that Jesus prays for? What are the last things that he leaves with his disciples? Well, the first thing is that Jesus begins by praying for his own glorification. Now, if this were anyone but Jesus, that would be a rather presumptuous thing to do, wouldn't it? And praying for your own glorification. But Jesus makes it clear that he is deserving of this glorification. Let's read together verses 1 through 8 of John chapter 17. It'll be on the screen if you're joining us online or, or if you didn't bring a Bible with you today this morning. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So why is it that Jesus is deserving of glory? Well, Jesus deserves glory because God deserves glory. Now we see in verse 1 that Jesus says if he receives glory, that the Father will also be glorified. And then in verses 4 through 5, he says the reverse, that if the Father receives glory, that Jesus will also be glorified. Now, this seems kind of circuitous, right? Like the Father gets glory, the Son gets glory, the, the, just kind of, it's like this big circle. 
But it makes sense when we remember the concept of the Trinity. Now, we could spend a couple weeks talking about the Trinity, but we're going to do a crash course in the Trinity here this morning. The Bible teaches that God exists in three persons. This isn't individuals, but this is persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see this visualized at Jesus' baptism. If you look at Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we actually see this taking place. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And so in that moment, we see the Father speaking from heaven, we see the Son being baptized and coming out of the water, and we see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove on Jesus' shoulder. So you may be wondering, well, how on earth does that even work? Are we saying that God has some kind of multiple personality disorder? Well, no, we're not saying that. Are we saying that there are actually three gods? Absolutely not. Deuteronomy 6.4, among other places in the scriptures, is very clear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, there are a lot of ways that, that people kind of try to explain the Trinity, but the illustrations tend to fall apart at some point. Uh, I know one illustration people tend to use is this idea of an egg. So you have an egg, right? It has a shell, it has a white, and it has a yolk in the middle. And so those are three parts and one egg. Okay. Well, if you're like me and you like your pancakes kind of fluffy, you take that egg and you separate the yolk and the white and you crack the shell. And so now you have a shell, a white, and a yolk, and they're all separate. And so if you asked for an egg and I handed you a yolk, you would say, well, that's not an egg. That's an egg yolk. That doesn't make sense. Or what if I handed you the shell? Well, that's a shell. That's not an egg yolk. That doesn't make sense. And so the illustration kind of breaks down because in this case, Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. God the Father is God. And so the illustration just doesn't quite fit. And so we have a hard time picturing what this is like. The bottom line is that God is one God, and he is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each of these persons is fully God. And so when one person of the Trinity receives glory, God receives glory, and God is worthy of glory. So why does this matter? Jesus' glory matters because Jesus is God and is Savior. Some would claim that Jesus is not God, but that's simply not true. Jesus states that he already had glory when he was with the Father. He claims he had glory before the world even existed, before time began. This is a place in Scripture where it is unambiguous. Jesus makes the claim that he and God are one and the same. And if Jesus is God, he is worthy of the glory that he is requesting from the Father in this prayer. Now, as we continue in the passage, we see that Jesus also prays for us to be set apart or sanctified. Let's look together at verses 9 through 19. Jesus continues, I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that's referring to Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So what does it mean to be sanctified? Well, sanctification is one of those kind of churchy words that shows up every now and then, but it's a fairly simple idea. If we look at the Old Testament temple and tabernacle, we can actually get a good idea of what sanctification refers to. So before worship could take place in either of these buildings, they had to be set apart or sanctified for that purpose. They had to be purified. And so sacrifices were made and offerings were presented to commit each of these structures for service to God. They were set apart for that. The priests and Levites and those serving in the temple were also sanctified or set apart for service in the temple. And if they were not sanctified, they could not serve in the temple. And so they had to be set apart for that. Every implement down to the smallest utensil was sanctified for holy service. And so if someone used something even as simple as a fork for their own personal use from the temple, it was a big deal because that wasn't their fork. That fork was set aside for temple service for worship to God. It was a holy fork. It was a sanctified fork. It was set apart. Now, this is why Nehemiah flips his lid in Nehemiah chapter 13. You know, Nehemiah is well known for building the wall around Jerusalem in 50 days and completing that task. So Nehemiah, after that, establishes some, some guidelines for the people and then goes back to the king. When he returns in Nehemiah chapter 13, he walks in on this situation where one of the priests allowed his buddy to stay in one of the rooms in the temple as if it was his own apartment. Now, not only is that offensive, but this guy that the priest let stay in the temple was an Ammonite. And Ammonites were expressly forbidden from even setting foot in the temple. <laughs> and so Nehemiah evicts this guy. Nehemiah comes in and says, uh-uh, this room is set apart for receiving offerings for God. This is not an apartment. Get out. And so Nehemiah kicks this guy out, throws his furniture on the lawn, and gets the sheriff to come and take him away, basically. So that space had been sanctified to store offerings for God, not for some guy to come and crash on his couch. That was the sanctified room. So in verses 17 and 19 in our, in our passage here in John 17, Jesus asks that we would be sanctified or set apart. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then verse 19, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, this is why John 17 is also referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer, because the priests were responsible for sanctifying people and objects for temple service. So why does this matter? This matters because Jesus, our high priest, prayed that we would be set apart to serve God, that we would be sanctified. Now, when we talk about sanctification, there's a sense in which this happens the moment we become a believer. When you place your faith and trust in Christ, you immediately are adopted into the family of God and are sanctified or set apart from those who are not from the world. And so there's also a sense, though, in which sanctification is a lifelong process. Our sanctification comes through, what did Jesus say? The truth, which Jesus defines here as God's word. 
So once we become a believer, we begin this lifelong process of becoming more like Christ through understanding how a Christian should live and should act. Now, if you were here last week or if you tuned into us online last week, uh, there was a prayer teaching moment video that I had recorded. Uh, if you want to catch it, you can go catch last week's recording, but I'm going to summarize the, the main point here. I mentioned that we must be in relationship with Christ through prayer and studying God's Word if we hope to become more like Christ. Now, being in the Word is a vital part of this equation because Jesus tells us that God's Word is truth and it sets us apart. So if we have no knowledge of the truth, how can we expect to live a life set, set apart for God? Well, the bottom line is we can't if we're not in the Word. And so we have to be in that Word to be set apart. Now, Jesus also prays here that we, would be, that we would be kept in the Father's name and kept away from the evil one, that we would be set apart from the evil one. Now, this is another way in which we are sanctified. So at this point in his prayer, Jesus is specifically referencing his core group of disciples. Remember, they are walking alongside him on the way to the garden as he is praying this prayer. And so he's thinking about them specifically at this point. But as we discussed, those guys are about to experience this difficult, life-altering period of transition. As the leaders of Christ's fledgling church, the disciples were about to have this huge neon glowing target on their backs. They were not only at risk of persecution from those who opposed them, the world, they were also at risk of spiritual opposition from Satan himself, the evil one. As they faced the difficult times ahead, the temptation to stray away from being on mission for Christ was going to be great. I mean, you can imagine if you were faced with a situation where you had to recant your faith or face some kind of torture, that's a very difficult spot to be in. So this matters because Jesus himself prayed that we would be set apart from the world and the evil one. He prayed for his disciples that they would be set apart from the evil one. Now, I'd imagine that if anyone would have their prayers answered, it would be Jesus, right? <laughs> so Jesus himself prayed that those who belong to him would be kept from the evil one. So if you're here this morning or if you're listening online and you've trusted Christ and are a Christian, you have nothing to fear from Satan and his minions. Jesus himself prayed that you would be set apart from him. Now, that doesn't mean you won't try. There will be times when we experience trials, when we face doubts that challenge our faith, when things seem hopeless or when we grow weary of doing good, as Paul said. Know that Jesus himself prayed for you to be kept in the Father's name. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you are secure in that faith no matter what storms come your way. Jesus also clarifies what he means by praying that we would be safe from the evil one. He indicates that we are not of the world, but also indicates that he does not want us to be taken out of the world. There's no expectation that Christians were to be isolated or physically separated from the world, right? If that were the case, how would those who are not Christians hear the gospel? How would they see someone who is not of this world interacting with their spouse or their children or their co-workers? They wouldn't. J. Ramsey Michaels says it this way, we were chosen out of the world, not taken out of the world. And that's important. Sometimes as Christians, we kind of like to have our holy huddle and, and side ourselves away from the world. But in reality, we have to interact with the world because if we don't interact with the world, how will they know? what a Christian is supposed to look like. How will they hear the gospel? Paul echoes this concept in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. The Corinthian believers were facing a problem with immorality in their ranks, 
And when Paul asks them to refrain from associating with those practicing immorality, he clarifies that that command was specifically to refrain from associating with those who claimed to be brothers but refused to live in the way that they were supposed to live. He says in verse 10, they could never isolate themselves from unbelievers or those of this world because doing so would mean that you would have to go out of the world. And until Elon Musk builds that rocket that we can take to Mars, that's just not going to happen, is it? So... How could God's kingdom grow if Christians never interface with those around them? It's just not possible. So we are in the world, but we are not supposed to be of the world. Now, finally, Jesus here prays for unity. Let's look at verses 20 through 26 together. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus here prays for unity, both for, again, the disciples who were walking with him in that moment as he prayed, but he also prayed for all of us as future believers, all of those who would hear the word that the disciple would share. So that's us. Now, he prays that our unity would model that of the Trinity, like we just talked about, that perfect unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, that's a pretty lofty goal, isn't it? That we would all be unified as God is unified, Well, it turns heads when we express love to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. When you think about it, there's not much of a reason for us to show that love to each other from a worldly perspective. I mean, we come from different states, maybe even different countries. We're a mix of wash ashores and people who grew up on Cape Cod. We don't look alike. We don't talk alike. We don't dress alike. We come from different generations. We come from different ethnicities. And we have a lot of different thoughts and opinions. We have a lot of different thoughts and opinions, don't we? (laughs) Why would such a diverse group of people express such love for each other? Why would someone in my church family drop everything and come to my aid if I needed it? Why would they support me in a pinch? They're not my blood family. Why would they do that? Well, we as believers are unified in purpose. We choose to follow Christ and worship Him. We choose to believe that Jesus is who he said he is and that he is worthy of praise. We recognize that all believers have been adopted together into God's family. We are united with billions of people both now, this morning, as we worship together and throughout history. I was in Guatemala on a missions trip one summer and experienced this. Whenever our busload of college students from the United States joined a local congregation for worship, Nearly every pastor had the same passage of Scripture in mind to share. It's like they had some kind of playbook they were going through. Oh, Americans on a bus here. Here's the playbook. Here's the verse we read. But they hadn't coordinated it. They would quote the same passage of Scripture for our arrival. 
Psalm 133. And the first verse in Psalm 133 says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It doesn't take long to recognize that even though we spoke different languages and came from different countries, we were united together as one in Christ. And it was so beautiful to stand there and to worship with other believers, even though we were speaking different languages. It's like a little slice of heaven here on earth, to stand there with our brothers and sisters and to worship together, even though we couldn't understand what each other was saying. You could look in their face and you know, you knew what they were saying. You knew what they were singing. You knew who they were worshiping. We're not always perfect at practicing unity, are we? <laughs> I think it's mostly because we're all still walking through this process of sanctification that we talked about earlier. Anybody in here perfect? I know I'm not. <laughs> that means that our interactions with each other are not always excellent. Now, I know, me personally, I've said and done some pretty boneheaded things in the past, things that have hindered unity rather than helping it. So I, for one, am grateful for Paul's words in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, because they may apply to me the most. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So there it is in the Bible. You have to bear with one another in love. You've got to bear with me in love. I'm sorry. It's right there. It's written there. <laughs> Satan would love nothing more than for us to cease bearing with one another in love. I think today, now more than ever, we face such disunity. His goal is to disrupt the unity of the church and our bond of peace. He would much rather us argue about silly, frivolous things than to stand united in love and purpose. A divided church is an inert, ineffective church. A church with infighting and power struggles is a stench to those on the outside looking in. And you've probably seen it with the church you may know of that, that is just infighting and talking about the color of the carpet instead of being on that gospel mission. You don't want to have anything to do with that. It's a stench. And so imagine what that's like for unbelievers on the outside looking in. They say they're church family, but they can't even figure that out on their own. When we do show unity as a church, we have, we have the opposite effect and we accomplish something vital. Our unity matters because it reflects God to others, drawing others to him. Jesus makes this clear in John 17, 23, that they may become perfectly one so that what? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So you've probably heard this illustration before, but Christians are sort of like the moon. The moon doesn't actually produce its own light, right? When the moon shines, it's only because the light of the sun is reflecting back to earth. And so that light originates from the sun, not the moon itself. So in the same way, when we demonstrate love and unity as believers, we reflect the love of God to a lost and dying world, and we encourage them to hear the gospel. So what is the gospel? We're going to close with this idea. The word gospel means good news. The gospel is the reason why we're here this morning. It's the reason why we've gathered here in person or tuned in live online. This good news can actually be summarized in six words that spell out the word gospel as an acrostic. And if you joined us in youth group in the fall, this will actually sound really familiar to you. But whether it's your first time hearing it or your hundredth, this is a way that you can remember the basics of the gospel and maybe even share it with someone else. So if we walk through that acrostic, G, God. In the beginning, God created humanity to be with him in perfect relationship with him and with each other. 
That unity that we just talked about, that was at its peak in the Garden of Eden until, oh, our sins separate us from God. Adam and Eve decided that they could do a better job than God. In their pride, they said, we don't need him. We can do things our own way. And so they rebelled against God. That unity and perfection of the garden was destroyed and sin entered into the world. All of us still sin and do things that go against God. So Romans 3.23 describes it like this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That all includes me and includes you. Over time, humanity discovered that S, sins, sins cannot be removed by good deeds. People try to do whatever they can to atone for their sins. Some kind of try to view this as like a scale. Well, if I do more good, maybe that'll outweigh my bad and, and it'll all work out in the end. But that's like trying to weigh a handful of pebbles against a mountain. It just doesn't work. Isaiah 64, 6 describes it like this. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. There's nothing we can do on our own that will ever settle that sin debt. But there is hope. P, paying. Paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live. He died a death in our place in order to pay for that sin debt. He brought that sin upon himself. And he rose again, proving that he is who he said he is and that his mission was accomplished. So that E, everyone, everyone who trusts in Christ alone has eternal life. Jesus accomplished what we could not. He simply, if we simply place our faith and trust in him, then we can receive that gift. Romans 10.9 puts it like this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we just learned about L, life. Life with Jesus begins now and lasts forever. When we place our trust in Christ, we experience life on earth as a part of his kingdom. And we have the promise of eternal life with him. Jesus just defined eternal life for us in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Christ Jesus whom you have sent. And then verse 24, Jesus tells us that we'll get to be with him where he is and see him in his glory. How incredible is that? That is outstanding. Now, I can't help but wonder if there's anyone listening to this message, whether you're here in, in the sanctuary, in the multipurpose room, or maybe you're joining us online this morning. If you're here or listening and you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ, never done that before, made that decision, I'm going to say a short prayer, and we're also going to have the words on the screen for you in a moment. I invite you to pray along with me, whether you're here in person or listening online, and to pray that prayer from your heart and to make that decision. Dear God, I know that my sins have broken my relationship with you and that nothing I could do could ever change that. But right now, I believe that Jesus died in my place and rose again from the dead. I trust in him to forgive me for my sins. Through faith in him, I am entering an eternal relationship with you. Thank you for this free gift. Amen. If you just prayed and trusted Christ for the first time, please let us know. If you're here in person today, just catch one of us on the way out and let us know. If you've joined us online, uh, we would love for you to email us or send us a Facebook message and kind of let us know that you made that decision because we want to celebrate with you. But for those of us who here or listening who have made that decision before, remember this. The main point of Jesus' prayer for us 
is that we would be unified and set apart for the sake of the gospel, the good news. We have to be unified. We've been tasked with telling others about the glorified risen Christ and what he has done for us. He is worthy of our worship and he is worthy of our praise. Let's pray together as we close. Father, we thank you for answering your son's prayer. We thank you that he has been glorified and now sits at your right hand. We thank you that the disciples remained set apart and unified, launching your church. We thank you that 2,000 years later, we stand unified for the purpose of expanding your kingdom. We thank you that we remain set apart for your name, free from the grasp of the evil one. Father, help us to live our lives in such a way that we may be in the world and not of the world, influencing all nations and peoples to come to you. We look forward to one day seeing your son in all of his glory when we go to him where he is. We praise you and we thank you. Amen.